Welcome to Community Vineyard Church Podcast, a community of believers who passionately worships the Lord Jesus Christ, declares His truth, and shares His life with a world in need. Now, for this week's message. dive into our, uh, we're going to continue in the book of Romans. We're starting in chapter 2 today. So if you have your Bibles or your electronic device, you can dive right in. We're going to cover hopefully the entire chapter today. But before we dive into that, now we can actually get into a little more uh, cuteness, okay? So here we go. Jack is doing math. My lovely wife has created math worksheets for him, like he wants to do math worksheets. It's, I don't know, it's, um, but I will say, I mean, I, I, I did like math and, sci- and science when I was a kid, and, and uh, um, I don't know if I did it much at home, like created, but uh, yeah, he got all those right, and he just turned four, so I'm, it's pretty impressive, and he's, yes, he should, yes, yes. Tell him, tell, remember, for those of you guys, we just did a baby dedication. Tell your kids all of the qualities that you love about them all the way through, I mean, I would say definitely through the age seven or eight, but even past that because psychologically, um, and you guys know I used to be a therapist, psychologically, the things that you tell your children about themselves in that first seven or eight years of, of life will become their internal dialogue as they step into adulthood. So they will hear the things that you say and speak over them as their thoughts about themselves. And it's really a beautiful thing if you tell them who they are in Christ, if you tell them how smart they are, if you speak all these beautiful words into them. And speaking of beautiful, (laughs) it's lilac season. Yeah. Lucy and Jack have been having so much fun the last few days outside. And, yeah, they just love our flowers, love the lilacs. But, yeah, I think that was what yesterday. It was just yesterday. And then Abby. That was actually, I zoomed in. It was a video. She was taking her first ride on the swing yesterday. And she was having a, she was having a lot of fun, yeah. So... Now we can dive into the message, and I'm going to start with a disclaimer like I sometimes do. This one isn't exactly funny. I think that you guys, we should try to focus in here. So let's talk about your old nature, because it's important that we have a little bit of a disclaimer as we talk about God's judgment today. So if you have accepted Christ, your old nature, your sinful nature is dead dead, gone. He didn't rehabilitate it, okay? He's not trying to fix it or or resurrect it. The diagnosis and the prognosis for your sin was much too grave. In fact, the only real solution was for him to completely annihilate it, destroy it, and create something completely new that had never been created before. 
So when we talk about God's judgment today, his sort of verdict upon us, remember Paul is using legal language. You know, we talk about legal language, you know, now in, in English we'll say things like subpoena and objection. That's the legal language. So the language that Paul is using throughout the book of Romans is legal language that would be understood by, by the Greeks uh, in, in Greek. And so when he talks about the judgment of God uh, in chapter 2, he's talking about the verdict. And so, what we're going to be talking about is, is what was poured out on Christ on our behalf for our sins, for those of us who receive the free gift that's offered. But as, as we're going to see, it doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't, if we're saved, that we don't need to pay attention, right? Because just because we're saved doesn't mean, it's not like, oh yeah, okay, so Christ took my penalty, so when I hear a message on judgment or wrath like we talked about two weeks ago, it doesn't mean that you just check out. On the contrary, Paul anticipated people checking out, and so he used several literary methods to try to get our attention in these chapters, because it is important that we pay attention, lest we forget. So let's begin with a moment of prayer. Lord, we are so unbelievably grateful for all that you have done to pull us out of our sinful nature and destroy our sinful nature and, and pull us up out of the grave with you. And we identify with your resurrection, Lord. Pray, Lord, that we would never forget where we were and how far that we've come. I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what it is that you want us to hear today. In Jesus' name. So, so for a brief review, in Romans 1, we talked about, or Paul talked to his audience, about some of the most egregious sins, the most notorious, notoriously guilty. And now he begins to speak to those who believe that they're mostly good, that they're moral in their conduct. See, he, he talked about what would be considered by most religious people at the time, and maybe even today, as the worst of the worst, right? In two categories, the ungodly and the wicked. And he gives descriptions of what these things look like. But then he does something very interesting. He begins to use a very uh, strange literary device in, in Romans chapter 2, and he does it twice, where he begins to have a sort of an imaginary argument with somebody who he sort of suspects may not be paying attention. And in this case, at least the first group of people are going to be the, the people who believe that they're moral. It's going to be the people like, I'm not ungodly. I'm saved. I'm not wicked. I don't do any of those things. But here's what Paul says to those people. And see if, see if this rings true. You may have been listening to my sermons over the last few weeks about ungodliness and wickedness and God's wrath and all of that. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, I'm saved, so that really doesn't apply to me. And in a sense, you're right, but in another sense, I think that there's definitely some wisdom that should be learned, and I think that it definitely does apply. So here's what Paul says, Romans chapter 2. You, therefore, who's the you? Well, yeah, you, you. it's, it's the, the, the Christians, it's the people who are saved, who don't think that they're ungodly or wicked. Therefore, you therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. 
because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So again, he's using this literary style. For those of you guys who are sort of nerds like me, it's, it's called a diatribe, diatribe, okay? And it's basically where you have an imaginary argument with somebody. And we do this all the time, usually when we're in the shower or driving our car alone. Yeah. <laughs> you have an imaginary argument with somebody about a situation that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> the people who are laughing know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> in this case, though... In this case, though, he, he's talking about the religious people. He's talking about all the people who believe that they don't fit into those categories, who think that they're exempt from all these evil characteristics that flow out of ungodliness and wickedness. But the reality is, is that left to our own devices and without the power of the Holy Spirit, in our flesh, we are lost hopelessly and confused. He's not saying that we're all guilty of the exact same things. He's just saying that our guilt or our sin manifests in a different way, and it all comes from the same place. These passages over, you know, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and, and 4, really, if you get into it, are, are, it's, one of the ways, it's one of the ways where the original sin doctrine has been sort of hammered out and developed. It's not exactly found in Scripture, but it, these are the chapters in which it becomes very, very clear that we are all hopelessly lost without Christ. Paul, in this instance, is trying to be as absolutely inclusive as possible. And he goes right into a few assumptions. Assumption number one is that God judges. This is a fact of human existence, whether you want to admit it or not. There are some, some churches and even some other religions that say, you know, that, that God doesn't judge, and, and He doesn't want us to judge, and that's just not true. That's just not true at all. Not only does God judge, but in some cases, He wants us to judge. If you're in leadership, okay, and you're trying to decide whether or not somebody would be a good fit for your children's ministry, you ought to judge them. And if they have some criminal history, some things in their background, we ought to judge them. And that doesn't mean that we're judging their salvation. It just means that we are judging them for the benefit of the body, for the entire body. Second uh, assumption, God judges ungodliness and wickedness. But this, these two things are by no means an exhaustive list. And the list that he lists, you know, the things that he mentioned in chapter 1 is by no means an exhaustive list as well. There were a lot of things near the end of chapter 1. I would encourage you to, to go back and read it. But they're also judged more on the heart than they are the action, as we'll see in a moment. The other assumption is that God's judgment is true. This assumes two things. First of all, that truth exists right? This, this assumes if God's judgment is true, then truth does exist, and His judgment is just. So, moving on to Romans uh, 2, verse 3. So, when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So here's my question. Have you ever seen somebody who is not saved, or frankly, even somebody who is saved, 
experience favor? Experience the favor of God? And how do you react? How does it make you feel when they get the promotion that you want? How does it make you feel when they have the money that you want or the job that you want? Or, or, or even worse, they live in such a reckless, self-seeking manner, but they still seem to have the favor and the blessing of God. Do you ever see their God-given or even their hard-earned success with contempt? I know I have. I know I have. There was a long time when I was single, and I used to go to weddings, and I, I had to like prayerfully, prayerfully get myself in the right headspace so that I was happy for them, which you think that somebody would be happy, but it was something that I, not that person's wife, but I wanted a wife. It reminds me of this, this verse. Do you guys remember the, the parable in, in, uh, in the Gospels when, when you have the, the vineyard workers who each start working at a different time? You know, some of them work, they start working at 8 in the morning, then noon, and then, and then some come at like 5 o'clock, they work for an hour, and then what does is, what is the, the manager do? He pays them all the same amount. And, and they are just filled with contempt, these workers. You know, in one translation, I, I loved this translation because it was sort of a transliteration. It's not exactly what it says, but the, the thing that the, the manager says, he says, why is your eye evil because I'm generous? Can't God do what he wants with what's his? Sometimes God wants you to see somebody get what you want as a means to call you to repentance. See, we, we mix things up, and we begin to view it with contempt, or we get angry at God. Or worse, have you ever been, I've, ex, I've experienced all these things, have you ever ex, been in like active rebellion from God? Now, I'm not talking about cursing the Lord, but what I'm talking about is, you know, having unrepentant sin in my life that I don't want to address and then God is good to me. He gives me a blessing. It, it, at first, it kind of feels like putting salt in the wound, but really, God's goodness in those situations is used to call me, us, to repentance. And I think that we would be wise to recognize God's goodness as a call to repentance and not to take advantage of it, and not to misinterpret it so that we begin to view it with contempt or that we begin to view God with anger because we see him being good to somebody else. Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they have done. Remember what God's wrath was a few weeks ago? I put up a couple of definitions. For those of you guys who weren't here, weren't here, one of my favorite definitions of God's wrath is it's an all-consuming fire that burns away anything that exists outside of God's love or is not in the process of becoming under God's love. And it's subject to the righteous justice of God's annihilation. So this fire, this all-consuming fire, will burn away all sin and selfishness. 
But when we feed on these things in our life, we are only making it more painful on ourselves when the wrath of God comes to burn it away. We would be wise to let those things go. Think of it this way. If you eat a bunch of unhealthy food for decades, okay, it is much more difficult for you to get to a place of physical fitness to burn all of that off than it is if you try to maintain a healthy attitude from the beginning. And the sooner you repent and turn away from that unhealthy lifestyle, the easier it will be on you. So stop feeding yourself on things that are spiritually unhealthy because it will make you spiritually fat, overweight, unhealthy. And then when the wrath of God comes, it will be much more painful in the long run because what will be left uh, after all the fat and all the unhealthy spirituality is burned away. It's getting quiet. Why is it so quiet? <laughs> Verse 7, to those who persist, or to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Again, there's, he's kind of dividing humanity, all of us, into two categories, either those who accept the righteousness of Christ, right? We accept by faith what he's done for us on the cross and thereby exchanging our sin for his righteousness or those who don't. And he puts them into two categories. The judgment or the verdict will either be guilty for those who reject the gospel or innocent for those who receive the righteousness of Christ. And the sentence will be the same for both. It'll be wrath, which will burn away all sin, which for those of us who have the, the righteousness of Christ put on us, it's not going to be nearly as painful. But for those of us who reject that fully, again, it gets into this idea that maybe hell isn't permanent. Maybe you're just totally burned away over a period of time. I don't know. I'm not going to open up that can of worms. I'm just going to leave that out there for the theologians to, to argue. <laughs> Romans 9, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. So this is, this is kind of a segue, okay, because First of all, he wants to make very clear that God doesn't show favoritism, okay? This is a free gift. Everything is available for everybody. The judgment is God is available for everybody, and the wrath of God is available for everybody, and the righteousness of Christ is available for everybody. But he does do something interesting. He sort of turns the tide a little bit. And what he's doing in this is he's beginning a little bit of a segue to talk about his second audience. So, the second audience are the Jewish believers, the Jewish people who are in the crowd. So this is interesting. So earlier, when I made that comment that, that Paul was talking to the hyper-religious people, okay, he was talking about the people who didn't think that they fit in, they were morally good, they were mostly good, they were doing good, they were okay with themselves, uh, but Paul was calling them to pay attention, right? Well, here's, Paul is having, starting another conversation, another imaginary argument with another group of people. There are still people in the crowd that this letter is being read to that still believe that Paul wasn't talking to them. 
So, so he's like coming right back around, and he's talking about the Jewish believers. And, and in a sense, I can kind of empathize. I can kind of understand why they think that maybe God wasn't really speaking to them through Paul, because God for many years, thousand years or more, has been working with Jewish people in a very special way, in a very unique way. They had the law. They had revelation. They had prophets. They were his favored people. And so they always kind of had this in the back of their mind that they were favored. So as Paul talks about the people in, in chapter 1, they're like, oh, that's not me. And then he begins chapter 2, and there's still people in the crowd who are saying, oh, he's not talking about me. I wonder how many might still be in this room thinking, he's not talking about me, is he? <laughs> Paul, he knew it. Chapter, I'm going to read through uh, 12 through 16. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And then in parentheses, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. End of parentheses. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Now, what does that all mean? <laughs> well, it's, it's actually beautifully written because what he's talking about here is that the reality is, and he's addressing Jewish believers now, the reality is, is that the fact that they were given the law does not mean that they're any less under God's judgment or wrath than those who were not given the law. So in the first two verses, Paul makes clear that possessing the law, in reference to the Old Testament laws, the Pentateuch, it doesn't really matter. The law is the law. You're either following the law or you're not following the law. And if you're following the law, you're innocent. And if you're not following the law, you're guilty. Let me give you an example. Hypothetically, say there was a 15-year-old, a very stupid 15-year-old, who decided to tie a rope from a moped to a bicycle and pull his friend down the rope. Now, hypothetically, this 15-year-old did not know that that was breaking the law. But when the police pulled him over, he was informed that he was, in fact, breaking the law. Now, I know what you're thinking. Was I on the moped or the bicycle? <laughs> well, let me just say there were three of us. <laughs> Wrap your head around that one. And it's only by the provenient grace of God that I'm alive. <laughs> But the point is made. The law exists whether we are aware of it or not. And the just punishment, the wrath, 
the loving wrath of God is the sentence, and vice versa, whether we know it or not. I find it interesting, too, that Paul says that the conscience of the Gentile, this is sort of people who obvious, obviously aren't Jewish, that the conscience is, of the Gentile is basically functioning in the same way as the law does. So for people who are never introduced to the law, for people who never knew Christ or ever heard His name, because we are made in God's image, there's a part of us that speaks to us, our conscience, there's a part of us that speaks to us about what is right and wrong. Now, of course, that, that gets distorted, that is distorted, but there is still an echo of that in all of us. And the last verse can be somewhat difficult to navigate, but... If you, if you remove the parentheses, you see that it's actually connected to verse 13. And so what he's talking about, the secret, is basically the idea that nobody really knows if somebody else is saved other than that person and God. That's it. Now, we can, again, we can sort of judge people by their fruits for the purposes of, of, of ministry and other, and other tasks, but I, I'm personally starting to get a little sick of hearing other Christians make comments about other Christians that they aren't saved. Or, or I mean, we don't know. And, and they'll say something, okay, so say somebody makes a comment on works-based salvation. This was the most recent one that I heard, the works-based salvation. And then they accuse them of not being saved because they believe in works-based salvation. And of course, I don't believe in works-based salvation. But there were a lot of things that I did believe when I first became a Christian, and I said some stupid things. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't saved. And I just think that we need to, we need to pay attention a little bit before we make flippant comments like that. It, it's, I don't know, it's just annoying. I Get off my soapbox. But then Paul goes in from 17 to 29. Okay, I'm just going to do a summary because we're, we're a little running out of time. I just want, I knew that this was going to take a while. But what's interesting about this entire summary is Paul really addresses the issue of Jewish believers, Jewish people believing that they are somehow separate, somehow set apart, that they are somehow um, more holy. And he specifically talks about the spiritual practice of circumcision. And, and what he... What you, a lot of people don't understand about circumcision when it comes to the Jewish believer, the sort of hyper-religious believer, is that they believed that circumcision was so holy that if they endured it, if they went through it, that that was actually what purified them. That they could sin in any way, some of them, not all of them, but some of them believed that uh, circumcision was to them as baptism is to the hyper-religious Christian, meaning that there are people who believe in Christianity that baptism saves them, that if I don't get baptized, that I'm, go that I'm going to hell, that that is what saves me. In this time period, there was groups of Jewish believers who believed that if I got circumcised, then that was enough. That was enough. I'm purified. That's how holy they believed it was. And Paul makes very clear, he makes the point, the things that the Jewish believe, that the Jewish people believe that they are separate and special before the eyes of the Lord, primarily their claim to holiness, um, does not make them holy or separate from any other believer. Okay? Paul confronts this thinking head on. See, if true righteousness isn't taking hold, then circumcision is pointless. And he goes into this pretty much in the entire book of Galatians. If you want, to, he touches briefly on this, 
But in the entire book of Galatians, he's basically making the, the point that circumcision is pointless altogether, but especially because if it, does, it, it doesn't lead to righteousness. It doesn't lead to a repentant heart. It doesn't lead to a change in anything. And here's my question to, to us, okay? Has your Christianity become to you what circumcision was to the Jews? Do you believe that your Christianity somehow makes you morally superior to the culture around you? That somehow these verses still aren't applicable to you? Because again, this is, this is exactly what Paul is continuing to bring people back to. And I'm going to tell you, it's easier to fall into this trap than you might think, mainly, in our culture, mainly because in our culture that the sin is becoming more and more overt and more and more toxic, that you think to yourself, I would never engage in anything like that. It's foul, it's disgusting. And I want to say that, first of all, just the reason that you think it's foul and disgusting is evidence of the Holy Spirit in you. But second of all, remove the Holy Spirit and your salvation from you, what might you end up doing? If we're not too careful, it can be easy to see how sin has progressed and forget that if not for the grace of God, there go I. So what should we do then? Should we focus on our sins? Is that, is that what I'm asking you guys to do? No, I, I, it's not because here's the thing. We don't want to focus on our dead man, our dead nature. But sometimes we should reflect on it. See, we don't need to dwell on the past in our past sin, especially if we're continuing to struggle in sin. If we dwell on sin while we're continuing to struggle with it, then you will continue to struggle with it more. Because what you believe about yourself will be always manifest in your behavior. So if you believe you're a sinner, you will sin. But if you believe what the Bible says about you, that you're a saint then you may still sin, but you will sin less. And if you go to, and this was my problem when I was a therapist, you know, they'd constantly want to talk, you know, some of my colleagues would constantly want to talk to people about the things that they're doing wrong. And I didn't find that to be very productive. If you constantly are talking about this, and it's in every aspect of your life, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink, don't drink. If that's all you hear, and you're going to all these different meetings and reading all these books. Now, I love AA. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I, I actually got sober through AA. But if, you're, if that's your life and you're not focusing on the, the righteousness of Christ, you're not focusing on your identity in Christ, you're not focusing on who God says you are, then you're going to be continuing to play that narrative in your mind about being an alcoholic, and you're going to continue to struggle with that sin more and more. We should be focusing on the truth about our new nature. However, in this case, I do believe there's some value in reflecting on how desperately lost we were and how desperately we needed a Savior. For two reasons, because I was reading, I was reading through this, and, and, and this is what it, the, the, I believe the Holy Spirit pulled this out of me. When we truly remember how broken we were and how vulnerable we were to ungodliness and wickedness that Paul talks about in chapter 1, it gives us gratitude and great appreciation for all that God has done 
for us on the cross. It gives us true humility to remember how we were and the great lengths that he went to to purchase our salvation. For a sinner, past tense, like me. Sometimes it does us good to remember our old sinful nature, reminding ourselves of who we really are and who Jesus declared us to be, which is a saint. See, reflecting on the past, if we're focusing on it and we're saying, don't push the red button, don't push the red button, don't push the red button, you're going to push the red button. But every now and then, it's okay to sort of look back at where you were. And what it should do is it should bubble up rejoicing and worship in you. But then secondly, it should give you greater compassion for those who don't know Jesus and who are lost in their sin. It should help you to soften your heart if you develop a hard heart over time. It should cause us to have grief and mourning for those who don't know Him and who don't experience the freedom from sin that is offered through Jesus Christ. And thirdly, it should propel us to evangelism. It should, like, that, those three things, worship, gratitude, mourning for those who don't have the free gift that I didn't deserve, should propel us to tell people about Jesus. It can be easy for us to lose our energy, motivation, and enthusiasm for reaching the lost. Serving the church and even sacrificing for Jesus, if we're not careful, it becomes a hassle. It becomes stressful or even worse, annoying. And I think that it's important as we look at these verses to reflect on where we were so that we can revitalize some of those things in our heart so that we don't lose our first love. Now, I'm going to invite the worship team up. And maybe, maybe this latter part of my message really doesn't apply to you, and I know that that's true. Maybe you're faithfully serving the Lord and loving every minute of it. I, I know there's people in here that are. Maybe you do mourn for the lost. Maybe you do evangelize. Maybe you have all the energy and motivation that you need and all the time that you need to do things ministry-related. But if you're like me, sometimes you need a fresh perspective. And as the worship team plays, I, I ask Lord to choose a song that is a little bit more contemplative. We're not going to be jumping up and down for this first song. I want you to just spend a few minutes, you know, your head bowed, your eyes closed, and just remember who you were before you met Jesus. Imagine how bad it could have gotten if he hadn't pulled you out. I don't, I don't think I'd be here. I think I'd be dead, if, if I'm being honest. And for me, the only possible response and reaction to this is worship. And when you're ready, you can stand and worship the Lord. But I'd like you to just take a few moments few minutes to remember what redemption and freedom feels like. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Community Vineyard Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's message, click the share button and be sure to subscribe to our channel so that you'll be notified of our latest content. To learn more about Community Vineyard Church or how you can partner with us, please visit our website at www.communityvineyard.org. Until next time.